welcome to church. Welcome to church. <clears throat> welcome to church to and other, other drugs. drugs. Welcome to other drugs. Yep. Boy. And the church, and the church thing. You know. I wish I was on some other drugs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh. That's so funny. I have this um, old African-American gentleman that I sponsor, and he's like just the light of my life. I've sponsored him since he got sober. Oh, yeah. I met that dude, huh? Yeah, John. Yeah, yeah. He's the best. Yeah, yeah. But every fucking time I was just at a meeting, and every time I share, he's all, that's my sponsor. Yeah. Yeah, that was when I had <laughs> so that good. I had that zinger when I introduced you, giving you your chip. That's right. What did he say? Uh, he was I, all... I'm the best sponsor ever. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was all, huh, well, I, I, I've known John since before. He was the best sponsor ever. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, I, I can't believe you said that. It was funny. You had to be there. Um, actually... First of all, we got two new Patreons. Hey, hey, hey. Woo, woo, we got woo, woo. Paul James and... Punk, punk, punk rock therapy that's the name punk rock therapy show yourself yeah punk rock therapy i need your your name or or if you're well because the best part of being a patron patron is being in our facebook group and we need like your name parts for that right and if your name is legally punk rock therapy i apologize i'll, I'll go look for you yeah, if your name name is legally punk rock therapy, I need to see that birth certificate, dog. And also, I need to have your parents on the podcast. Right? Not yeah. you. You yeah. are parents, please, because they're the coolest human beings on the planet. Your parents' names are Smooth Jazz, Made You, and uh, <laughs> and just adult contemporary. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I got to talk about this. So there's a lawyer in louisiana a lawyer and a duck walk into a bar is that a joke i want to hear it i was just making it up as oh, i go well let's see if you can a lawyer and a duck walk into a bar bartender says i don't hey mister why hey you're the dude why do you help my duck? wife leave me and the duck <laughs> says no that was me quackity quack quack <laughs> Jeez, that's bad Anyway, there's a lawyer in Lafayette. Moving yeah. on. Oh, yeah, you you should have gone like, "Hey, what are you guys doing here?" And he's like, "I'm addicted to quack," and he's helping me. <laughs> so that wasn't like, bad. Yeah, it wasn't good. That one either. was like the duck was banging the bartender's wife. Did you not get that part? Oh okay. no, I didn't. No, I did. <laughs> quack quack. Oh, anyway. what the fuck? What are you talking about? I don't know. Just keep going. Tell your fucking story. Jeez, that was bad. Um. Okay, so there's this lawyer in Baton Rouge uh-huh. named Gordon McKernan, and okay. he has he's he has so many billboards that there's a y'all can go look it up. It's called Gordon McKernan memes. He has his own Facebook page, and people meme him out. He's I mean he's like he's one of those people. I guess every that's like that's like Jeff Cook here. Like yeah, he's a real every estate state agent. he's a real estate agent. Yeah, every state has their really advert tizerily proficient whatever lawyer bureaucrat real estate agent so dumb so but he recently started using bible verses on his billboards and he would do like it would say one of them is blessed are the meek dot 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 quotes and then the verse and then his face and it's like you are he's in he's an injury he is a uh 
injury lawyer, like big truck. You mean an ambulance chaser? An ambulance chaser. So, but recently he has he built this giant ornate. It looks like. Have you ever seen a? Um, it looks like a Mormon church slash castle. Yeah. Like you ever seen like a and giant I, Mormon church? They're just yeah. There's a huge one in San Diego, like right by the airport or on the way to the airport. Yeah, it's math. It's right on. It's right on the interstate. It's huge. It's got a giant. Is he Mormon? No, I'm just saying in terms of ornateness. That's that's what it's gaudy. Orn- it looks like ornateosity. Yeah, gotcha. it looks like a castle, and uh-huh. it has like a giant. It looks like um, uh, like a um, evil villain's lair, and it has a huge G on it. So, and then it, have you seen those massive American flags they have at car dealerships sometimes? Yes. Okay. Right next to that is, I mean, no shit. It has to be 150 feet by 150. I mean, it's humongous. A flag that says Psalm 23. I hate you so much. Dude. Fuck <laughs> that guy. Like, like, seriously? Seriously? What are you uh, doing? Hey, congregation. I need you guys to all find him on Twitter and just say, fuck you. Well, I'm really, I'm seriously about, and so, yeah, and Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Like, what does that have to do with you chasing, uh, you know. With you making money on people's pain and misery. Right. And and gouging. 45%. Yes, dude. And having enough money to build, you know, Castle D. Gordon McKernan on the side of I-10. I don't know. I do want everyone to go. Congregation, this is our call to arms. Just go on his face, you know, find him on social media. Don't be mean, but be like, hey, man, so, like, what are you doing? Like, what, what's your deal? What, is, what does Psalm 23 have to do with being an no. injury lawyer? No, no, no. Be mean, though. No. Listen. Okay, well, for the record, I said don't be mean, but I also am going to say John has an opinion. Yeah, be mean. Be real All mean. All right, there we go. Um. So... <clears throat> I was reminded of, um, I don't know what we were doing. I, w- I got to remember the context and think. Were you doing that thing you do? Does anybody remember that movie? That was a good of course, movie. I, was dude. Like, well, I mean, Great. obviously you remember it. You goober, you brought it up. <laughs> Anybody besides you. Um, geez. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, I think it was Just like me, me, Brent, and Dirty were working out. Um, so we were talking about uh, playgrounds or something. So me and uh, what? What you guys are fucking creepy. Shut up, dude. I don't, three, I don't remember. Three Whatever, dudes taking out of the gym talking about kids on playgrounds. Or how, how often do you go to playgrounds? Often. I, I rest children. my case. You perv. I have children. Oh, that's the perfect cover. Uh-huh, that's the uh-huh. perfect cover. Uh-huh. I think Jeffrey Dahmer had kids, too. No, he didn't. No, one of them did, though. I'm sure of it. I don't know. They don't. I think... I'm pretty sure one of them did. Because they're usually, like, sexually impotent. No, you watch too many Netflixes. That's real talk, dude. Like, a lot of them are impotent. That's why they have to like or that yeah stab things. Anyway, anyway, jeez. You just threw okay. So just three regular dudes sweating, talking about playgrounds. Like, hey man, 
When's the last time you've been to a playground? No, but anyway, so it reminded me of this story of <laughs> me and Kaylee. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. What? It was a time me and Kaylee were um we were uh we were in the throes of heroin addiction and we were like it was gonna be like our like one more shot and we're done. One of those things. Like we're never doing this again. So stupid. We're doing our we did our shots and I was like, That's it, baby. That's we're done. Give me that. And we I grabbed our needles and I threw them out the window and I was like, Yeah. And then I was like, <gasps> We're in a playground. And we were like parked at a playground. I was like, we can't leave those here. Like, what have I done? They were uncapped. So it's like midnight. Oh dude. my so God. Had, yes. Dude, I, immediately I was like, oh, no, we can't do that. And so I had to go out there with a fucking flashlight at midnight and track down the two needles that I just willy nilly threw out the window. Oh my Lord. Isn't that awful? So bad. I mean, little Jimmy little Jimmy is about to get it. I know. Can you? Oh, jeez, dude. I mean, I found him, of course. And then I was like, so this is how I'm going to get arrested. And Because now I'm going to get a freaking flashlight, you know. What a buzzkill for your last shot, too. I know. I know. <laughs> well, I, I would have been like, well, that one didn't count. Cause exactly. Obviously, well, it, it didn't, obviously. Count. It didn't. <laughs> yeah, that... Ugh. Explain, uh, officer. No, you don't understand. This was a. I'm. We're done. So you can't arrest us because like this was the last one. Right. Obvi. Obvi. I mean. Oh, what your your kid goes here? Oh. So my bad. Hey, remember that time? The last time that you and I were on a playground, at a school. Boy, do I'll never forget that night. <laughs> the night that you moved, that you moved the janitor, and we all had to run away, and that was incredible. That was an I incredible do. night. That's my 16th birthday, I think. I do. I mean, have we told that story? You do do? Have we told that story? Um, I don't know. Let's tell it again. If yeah, we have, is, it was like is, early. Well, from what I remember, so we were we were like 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 roaming teen packs of teenage boys typically do. We were just like huh. John John lived next to a school. It was summer night. We were just walking around doing nothing, probably like looking for something. It was winter. To... No, it was This is my birthday. Yeah, it was my birthday. Uh, hmm. Anyway, smoked like smoked some shitty weed. Yeah, or whatever. Walking around, yeah. we might have stolen a beer. I think we were like garage hopping too. That's yeah. what we were usually doing back then. And um, we passed by the school, and uh, we see a janitor cleaning up. Which, by the way, what was he doing? This was really late at night. Like homeboy we was came, not up we to came good back good. late. We came back later. That's what. That's what fucked us uh, up. Okay, it was well, earlier so, in the day. Okay, I thought it was dark, so you know, what do you, what's your, oh, let's moon them real quick. So I drop my pants, and, and we all bang on the door. Bah, 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 bah. And the guy pr- gets, I, you know, I press my butt, press ham against the window, and and we get a good laugh out of. It. He's like, oh, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. It was, it was, and we yeah. and we we move on. Right. Uh, we're walking back to his house. Late, we go do whatever more shenanigans. We walk back to our house and. Uh, we're in a soccer field, which is at the bottom of a hill. The school's on top of the hill. The soccer hill. The soccer field's at the bottom of the hill, and John's house is is through the woods back there. Um, and so we're, we just get into the soccer field, and we see flashlights and two cops, and they're like, "Hey, kids!" And so John just books it. John's gone, dude. Yeah, he's had experience. I'm out. It, we kind of we kind of split into 
I don't know. I thought only Evan stayed behind, but one of our one of our friends was, is a little is a portly fella who we, we nicknamed the Flash because of this. But he just kind of kind of trotted it. Wait, guys, hold on! And they were like, No, no, wait, we didn't do anything wrong. Like, let's just like let's just like, wait. fuck this. Let's just go back. Yeah, let's yeah. just go back. Like, what we didn't do. We anything. didn't do anything. Yeah, oh, we we're also I I vividly remember being really high. I don't. That's fu- like, like I guess I wouldn't really high anyway yeah so we go back up there and that's when uh we see the janitor is with the cops and he points to my the the port the flash flash. he points to the flash and that was him and he showed me his johnson like (laughs) what so he tried to tell him that we not only did we moon him but that we flipped around and showed Twig and Barry, which, like, why would we do that, A? B, why would he accuse us of doing Like, in retrospect, very weird situation. Yeah, but, real weird that he would make that up. Yeah, that's an odd thing to make up, dude. Like, yeah, uh, super weird. Yeah, and uh, yeah. so and and I was like, "Yep, you're absolutely right. He did do it. That was him." Sorry, I, just, I Sorry, remember like just... I remember sitting on the curb, like trying not to laugh, like trying yes. not to giggle because I was so high. Yeah, and then our parents came, and even they thought it was a little. It was like, funny. What are y'all yeah. doing? It was funny. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. But well, no. Well, the truth eventually came out. Because the flash broke he, under Well, pressure. because the cops started talking about making him a sex offender and shit. That's right. Yeah, like, he it started, got real and he serious. Broke and started crying. He and then started told crying. Him, it was Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you being like, what the fuck, Evan? Yeah. That was great. You Good time. the team. Yeah, I so... Know. Uh, so now we're going to bring on our old buddy, Brian Gadawa, who has a new book... Um, resistant revolt of the Jews, and we're gonna talk about Revelation and the apocalypse and, and other good stuff. All right, be right. right. We met by chance on the Roe Riverside. Our salt fire danced as our tea leaves dried. Our plans in the atmospheric time said, Let's give up sacrifice next land. So, as the fool on the bagpipes played, we kept cool in the parasol shade. Your thumb on my page at my tender age, east enters wide. Then, hidden in the box Way to go! Good, 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 good. So, catch me up. What's 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 new in your world? Well, um, I just released my latest book, uh, third book in my serials, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and uh, so that's what I wanted to come and talk about on your show. Yeah, and I'm very excited about it because this is uh, the third out of fourth out of four, <laughs> and um, it's called Resistant. Revolt of the Jews, and it's the um, 
to to uh, sort of recap maybe what we've talked about you know last year, um, Chronicles of the Apocalypse is a story that takes place in the first century around A.D. 64. It begins and it ends in A.D. 70, and it's um, it starts with uh, Nero Caesar and the Great Fire of Rome and how he blames that fire on the Christians and uses it as a justification to persecute them. So I take the journey from there where I, I, I talk about the Christian persecution in the first century and, you know, the Apostle Paul and Peter and their, uh, you know, their martyrdoms and all that. And, and that's the first book. But what happens, the, the, the uniqueness of the series is it's about the time period where the Apostle John writes his book of Revelation. So he, and, he's at Patmos. Yep, he's at Patmos, and Nero hears about this subversive letter being passed around that talks about, uh, you know, the destruction of the Roman Empire and the assassination of Caesar? What? That's the gossip that he hears, right? So he sends a— Is is this historical? uh, No. Okay, okay. Yeah, I don't know what this. I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, uh, this is my story that that the series is based on to kind of give it a thriller, excitement kind of Da Vinci Code in the ancient world, you know. So he hears about this letter, and of course, it is based on fact in that the Book of uh, Revelation is an apocalyptic literature, which that one of the one of the reasons why they wrote that way at times, such as Daniel or other apocalyptic literature, is you you use symbols in order to heavily obscure it from unbelievers if if it will get you in trouble. And so okay. if you're talking about the, uh, you know, Nero is this beast, you don't want to say Nero, right? So you use the word beast, that kind of a thing. Now, the, the uh, you know, some of the stuff might sound shocking to, to your listeners because the essence of the story is – um, they're hunting down this letter, and then they, you know, the uh, uh, Nero sends a Roman soldier, and he's got a, a Jewish um, doctor with him and a Christian slave, and they have to hunt down this letter, find out who it is, and maybe kill the guy if he wrote it, that kind of thing. But when they discover what it really is, they realize it's not what they thought it is. It's actually a letter warning Christians about the coming destruction on Jerusalem. So now they have to go out and, and get the message to the Christians. And that's kind of the premise of it. And that will sound shocking to many, many Christians because uh, a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, I've been wondering about, okay, how, how will this topic be relevant to church and, and other drugs, right? Right. And I thought, well, one of the biggest addictions that is, that is uh, you know, uh, tearing apart the body of Christ like heroin addiction is um, end time speculation. You know, I mean, we have people— Very uh, true. Yeah, and we've had we've had this for actually thousands of years, but I mean, even just in our own lifetime, if you just look at the last, you know, 100 years or so, we have Christians every single decade always saying, we're the last generation, look at how all the Bible passages fit our history. And and this is a really this is a problem because even nowadays everyone thinks, you know, this is it and it's coming down. And so they all assume this sort of futuristic mindset but what they're missing, I think, is a deeper, subtle symbolism that is in the text of Revelation. And, and, and I, I like to say it this way, like if you want to understand the meaning of Revelation, you have to understand it in the context of the ancient Jews and how the writer John is an is a ancient Jewish man <laughs> who's a Christian who's steeped in 
Old Testament prophetic literature. <clears throat> and so when he writes prophetic literature, he's going to use those symbols. And sure enough, every symbol that you see in the book of Revelation has precedent in the Old Testament. So rather than looking at our future and interpreting these symbols arbitrarily as if they have to do with us, let's find out what they mean in their context. And that's what my series of novels is trying to do, is trying to say, this is how it might have. Uh, this is how it was probably understood through the people in, in, in that day and age, and it's you know it's kind of shocking to Christians of today because they don't they don't think of that. But um, and so the goal of the novel is to write an entertaining, action-packed, romantic sort of storyline that also sort of tells you here's what happened in this time period that Christians are unaware of, and it's the time period after the Book of Acts. And, and it leads up to a historical event of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And this is an event that is many Christians don't know much about, but it's very crucial in the history of both Christianity and Judaism because it changed both those religions forever. It changed Judaism in the sense that once the temple was destroyed— they no longer could do their sacrifices, and they they created Judaism into a new religion. It's not even biblical anymore. It's not even Torah based. And, it's 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 not. You know. And so this is the uh, how many times has the temple been destroyed in history? There was like the time it got destroyed and Nehemiah re- rebuilt it. Yes. And then so this was like. Well, this well it, it, yeah it, this is technically the uh, the. There was there technically two temples, and the second temple was built by Zerubbabel, but and that was the you know the building of the temple after it was destroyed in the Babylonian exile. But what happened was when Herod comes along, Herod was an Edomite. He's not a good guy, but he was also a Hellenized ruler of Judea, Judea. and so what he did was he sort of re. Not rebuilt. I mean, he didn't tear down the Zerubbabel Temple, but he basically rebuilt it on top of it. You know what I mean? Like he, okay. so he, yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. he expanded it, so it became Herod's Temple. So technically, it's it's you know you could call it a third temple, but it, you know everyone understands it as the second temple. It's just that it was expanded on by Herod. Right? So and, and so, what do you mean by it created a new religion of Judaism? Well, because once they could no longer engage in sacrifices, okay. uh, well, let me put it this way: the temple was the heart and soul of God's presence in Israel. That was where his Shekinah glory was supposed to be with the Ark of the Covenant, right? And um, uh, and it was supposed to be his house. That's the term that, that was used, right? And even though God doesn't need a house built by hands, he accepted it, and he it was called his house, and his temple was his house where he lived with his married bride of Israel. And so... Um, and the heart and soul of their faith, their religion, was the sacrifices, the, the atonement, right? Well, once they could no longer engage in that, they no longer had the, the, their religion anymore. So, um, Which they actually, seems purposeful, right? Like, like yes. Almost like Jesus is saying, like, okay, this is done. This is done. Like there's something new, but I guess exactly. it, it just crea- you know, created the offshoot. Right, that's, but they weren't believing. They didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So whatever they create is going to be a um, a non-biblical, non-Christian, non-Messiah, non-Messianic uh, religion. So a lot of what um, Jews today believe is based on Talmudic and rabbinic uh, Judaism, which is not Torah. It's it's not. You know, they 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 have Torah in their services, but they're not following Torah at all. 
because the temple's not there, right? So that changed mm-hmm. it forever. And it also changed Christianity because until this point, remember the book of Acts, they're mm-hmm. all being persecuted by the Jews. Then it leads to the persecution by the Roman Empire. And then um, – and it almost gets wiped out. Um, but when – but but here's the problem is it, uh, you read in the book of Acts that there's this struggle between, you know, should we have – you know, how do we include Gentiles? And, and if they're not following Torah, do we even follow Torah? And, you know, on the one hand, you have Paul saying Torah is dead with Christ, where it's done away with, yet the temple's still there, and they're still engaging in, in sacrifices and stuff. So what I, how I see it is this. It's very clear. God is a God of history, not just philosophy. So when Jesus, as Messiah, dies and raises from the dead and ascends to heaven, um, that's when he institutes the new covenant, right? The new covenant that you know obliterates the old covenant, and, and Messiah is here, and the sacrifices are no longer necessary, right? But the thing is, is that happened in the spiritual realm. Right. And, and, you know, Paul writes about this, you know, Christ is seated on the right hand of God and the throne in heavens and all this. And that's what the Jews rejected. They said, no, he's not. He's not Messiah. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus says, and 24, Jesus says, because you're rejecting Messiah, the blood of all the prophets are going to be upon you. And I will, God will, will make your temple desolate and not one stone will be left upon another. So in other words, he's saying, God's going to judge you this generation the generation that rejected Messiah, that killed Messiah, he's going to judge you by, by destroying your house, which is not just the heart and soul of, Jew, of the Jewish faith, but it, it's the earthly incarnation of the Mosaic Covenant, right? So God, when he, you know, so when Jesus spiritually accomplishes the new covenant, but until that old, that old covenant temple is destroyed, there's this interim period a crossover period, right? And the new, te- you know, the book of Hebrews talks about this, where the new covenant is fading in, the old covenant is fading out. But when that temple is destroyed, then historically God vindicated Jesus as Messiah. He proved it to the Jews. See, Jesus is Messiah because I'm destroying the old covenant and all of its el- its incarnation. I'm replacing it with the new covenant. And that's sort of the heart and soul, in my opinion, of what Revelation is talking about as well. So that's the story I wanted to tell, but I didn't want to tell it as like this theological, I mean, I, I've done, I can do theology and that's fine, but I felt like uh, this is the kind of thing that was very uh, imaginative and powerful, and I thought if I could tell a story where people could learn the history of that time period and, and what led up to the destruction of the temple, even if they don't agree with me theologically, they'll appreciate all the facts and the history that I have in there because it's something that a lot of Christians don't know about, and that's the story I'm telling. Um, and just by way of, of uh, reference point, there's only one book that we know of that, that we have extant um, that talks in depth about this this the war that war, ends in the war destruction. The, wars of the Jews. Wars of the Jews yeah, by so Josephus. Where, where did Josephus come from? Who who is this dude? Well, Josephus was actually a Pharisee who was at that time he actually participated in the wars against Rome in around 66 67 A.D. But what happened was Josephus got captured, and rather and what he did was. He decided to go over to the Romans and help them, and and you know this is why he's sometimes considered a traitor. Uh, but in some ways, Josephus says he claims that he thought God was not 
God went to the side of the Romans and that God was punishing the Jews. And, you know, just like he did in the Old Testament, right? The prophets said that, right? Yeah. So Josephus was saying, hey, look, I'm going to be on the Roman side. I'm going to help them to try, and I'm going to try to persuade the Jews to give in. But, you know, of course, he never could. And um, so Josephus was inside the Roman camp while, the, while Rome besieged the, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so, therefore, he gives us inside information that we could never have gotten otherwise. And what happened was he kind of became a, a favorite of the Flavian family. Um, let's put it this way. Uh, the the, the 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 uh, legate or the general of the Roman armies uh, when they attacked Israel was Vespasian, and then he he had to go to Rome to become emperor when Nero died, and his son Titus took over. So what happened was after that time period, the Vespasian his family became the new family line of Caesars, and since Josephus had helped them out. They gave him a position as a Roman court historian, and that oh, he wow. went with them back to Rome, and that's and they he changed his name. His name was actually Joseph Ben Matthias, which is Jewish, right? And he changed it to Flavius Josephus, which reflected the Flavian family. He was a um, how can I say they were his uh, what do they call it when they support you um, patron? They were you gotcha. know so, but but he's very pro-Roman, but he's not anti-Jewish. And so the fascinating thing about the Wars of the Jews is it's this conflicted guy who's telling history, and you can read between the lines, and you can see how he, be, you know, he's a Jew, and he believes the Jews are God's people, but he also believes they've been they've disobeyed God and they're being punished by the Romans. And so, the, in one sense, he believes the Romans are God's instrument, uh, and so he kind of supports them. So he's got this conflict, which is a fascinating sort of inner conflict. That, as a matter of fact, I bring out in my series, I actually have Josephus show up in my book series, and this the most recent release is called Resistant Revolt of the Jews, and I focus more on this war, you know? So it's, yeah, it's quite a fascinating time period, and there's a lot to learn from it. A lot. What the... I think my favorite part, uh, the celestial event, the chariots in the sky that he documents in Wars of the Jews, which, which I went into and like it's documented in a couple different places and that's just like the most does that make an appearance yeah yeah it does i everything all those little miracles that josephus uh talked about which you know i don't know if they really happened or not because sometimes pretty disbelieving himself he's like look i wouldn't i wouldn't uh be writing this if there wasn't so many eyewitnesses it seems crazy but this is what a ton of people saw you're right in the so so the siege of jerusalem itself uh, just to clarify, um, so uh, it took about a, several years, about three and a half years to um, – I'm, I'm sorry, not three and a half years, but it, it took about a year for them to go through – a year and a half to go through the uh, country of Judea and sort of subdue all the, all the other cities. And then they, their last siege was on Jerusalem. So the whole event took three and a half years, which is interesting because that happens to match the three and a half years the Revelation talks about. But the uh, siege, yeah. yeah, but the siege of the city Jerusalem was about five months, and that's another that's ridiculous. That's a 40, long conflict. Exactly, exactly. But it's interesting that. That that also matches some of the dates in in Revelation as well, and I bring that out in the novels. But so what you're talking about is uh, Josephus says that at some 
time, like around 67 or 68 AD, there were several uh, omens that they interpreted. And these aren't noted anywhere else but here. But oh, actually, it's not true. There are a couple – Tacitus mentions one of them as well. Yeah. And that was that people – and uh, Yosefan, who's another Jewish historian whose works we don't have in English yet, but – but uh, they are – someone has got a hold of them and he's quoting from them. Anyway, there's this reference that they saw this uh, – on a certain date, uh, religious date, they saw the skies part and they saw heavenly chariots in, in the heavens. You know, um, And this is in reference to the, to the war that Rome had brought down upon Israel. So it was this notion of the heavenly war, war in the heavenlies, right? And there were several other omens that Josephus talked about um, – one of them was some really interesting ones I put in this latest novel. One was the uh, you know the the uh, uh, the menorah in the temple, mm-hmm. right? That that lampstand. Well, they had claimed that the middle light had stayed perpetually lit uh, during the whole time in the wilderness when the, when the Jews were in the wilderness, right? The forty years, right? Mm-hmm. And but interestingly, Josephus says, but now during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that light could never stay on. Oh, weird. Like they'd try to light it and it would just go out. Yes. Oh, wow. Which is interesting because, yeah, again, Josephus, he's, but he's not a Christian, right? Yeah. But what he's saying supports that Jesus, you know, God what is saying. What's his opinion like, of Jesus? Uh, well, there's there's one reference to Jesus in the text, and it's disputed. Some people claim it's not that it was really added on. It later. was added by Christians, but there's actually evidence. Some some of the foremost scholars on Josephus actually argue that it probably was uh, edited by some Christians, but there was an original text. Meaning, he says something to the effect that you know that these people fought, the, the disturbance was caused by uh, Christus, who or I'm sorry. Uh, Whatever a man named Christ or something, Jesus Christ, and uh, who who uh, I, I can't remember the exact words, but the yeah. idea is he makes the point he mentions that he, him. he wasn't Christ, but they say that he he says they believed he was Messiah, right? Um, but nonetheless, some some people say, oh, you know, Christians are just trying to put it put it back in there. But he does yeah. mention other people, like he mentions James, who his death in the temple, and James was the brother of Jesus. And so he does mention it, but he's strangely absent, or let's put it this way, he's strangely silent when it comes to Christians in that whole thing. And I, I actually think another thing in my research, I found that um, Josephus was in Rome around the time of the Great Fire. So I believe, oh, yeah. and he was actually over there on behalf of trying to rescue some priests, and I believe that he may have been part of the influence of convincing, persuading Nero to blame the fire on the Christians. So I think Josephus had an antipathy towards Christians ultimately, and I think that's one of the reasons why he virtually doesn't talk anything about them. That would make sense. So speaking of of false um, end times prophecies, something I remember growing up was one of the big signs— that it was going to happen again or the end is coming was that the temple was going to be rebuilt. So like, where does, where did, and I couldn't even, t- if you would ask me, I said, Oh, it's in revelation. Couldn't tell you if it <laughs> actually is, but like, where did, where do people get that from? And it does, is that still like, has that? So 
was this when like the unrest in the Middle East kind of started from and like it's just been an ever fight ever since to get that land back and to rebuild the temple? Like, is that still a goal? And yes. what does that have to do with any sort of end times? Yeah. Well, here's the problem is that there's not a single verse anywhere in the New Testament that talks about the temple being rebuilt. Um, and so this is one of those things that is assumed by the the typical premillennial or dispensational camps. And uh, now the reason why they believe that is because in the book of Revelation, in Re- uh, Revelation 11, uh, John says, you know, is told by an angel to go and measure the temple that is in, you know, on Mount Zion or whatever. Go and measure the out the inner temple and and don't measure the outer temple. And the symbolism of that has precedent in the Old Testament. And the precedent is in Ezekiel, when the angel measured the temple, it was for protection, right? So if he doesn't measure the outer courtyard, which is for the Gentiles, right, then that's a sign. And, and, and in let's see if I, can, if I can find that in Revelation. I think this is an interesting little side note. Um, so it, it, Revelation 11 says, I was given a measuring rod. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations or the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, which is three and a half years. Now, um, so they assume, oh, then if, if revelation hasn't happened, they assume it hasn't happened. And they say, therefore, if this talking about a temple, it must be rebuilt temple. But the problem is this. Um, there is no reference to a temple being rebuilt. So the context is John is writing in the first century. He's writing about the temple. This is contextually is the temple that is standing when he's writing it. If, right. if, if it would have been rebuilt, he would have said there's been rebuilt because otherwise people would be going, what do you mean there's a temple? It's been destroyed, right? So he obviously is assuming it's the temple that he knew of as he's writing it in the in 60s AD, right? And um, so the argument is, and, and, and uh, the argument is that the, in the Gospel of John, when John wants to to explain something that might be confusing in the present based on the past, he tells you. Like, for instance, when he says, Jesus said, you know, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And then he, and then he gives an aside and he says, uh, well, Jesus, actually, they thought he meant the temple, but Jesus was actually talking about his body, which he would raise from the dead later on. Right. So my point is, is uh, John already has the sort of style that, he would have said something about this is the temple that's going to be rebuilt because people would be going, what, what are you talking about? If it, if it was already destroyed. Right. Right. So that's my argument on that. And, and the idea is he's measuring the inner temple, but to protect it. And the idea is this, is that the inner temple is a symbol of the true people of God who I would argue are the Christians, but the outer temple is the physical temple that's going to be destroyed, which he says, he says the outer temple, Leave the outer court, uh, leave it out, for it's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for three and a half years, 42 months. And it turns out that uh, this, uh, the Roman armies did, in fact, trample Israel and, the, and Jerusalem for, four, for three and a half years. For 42 months, they trampled everything. And ultimately, their goal was to, to get the city of Jerusalem. And they did. And that city had the outer te- the outer temple, which was destroyed. So what I think Paul or what I think John is saying here is, the outer physical temple is going to be destroyed, 
by the Roman armies, just like Jesus said in Luke 21, Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its end is near. And that actually did occur. In, pretty specific. Yeah, yeah. very, very specific. <laughs> and this idea of trampling the holy city. In fact, let me, I don't know if I've got some examples here. Um, it's a, it's a common phrase of trampling, you know. And uh, in fact, I think it is, I think it, let me uh, find it here. Luke 21, I'm pretty sure uh, it says that they will, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jesus in Luke 21 20 through 24, he's, that's, he, he says what I already said, surrounded by the armies, know that it's desolation. Then flee to the mountains. He says, for these are days of vengeance. And then he says, great wrath and distress up against this people, against the Jews. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations, which did happen in AD 70. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. So you see how that's Once a, again, hyper-specific. Yes, and John is repeating that phrase when he says they will trample the holy city for 42 months, given over to the Gentiles. So uh, at that point in history, uh, Rome was the known world to those in the Middle East, right? Because they had conquered the known world. Mm-hmm. They didn't think it was – they didn't think Rome was in control of the Americas, right? But that was the world to them. And the Roman Empire what, what consisted of all the Gentile nations because they had conquered yeah. all the nations, so right? So would be the nations. The nations, exactly. So when it talks about the nations or the Gentiles, it's talking about Rome, which is that whole wholeness around them. So, yeah, fascinating, huh? It is. So – what about uh, the beast and the harlot? Oh boy, you're just gonna run through all these things. <laughs> I am. Well, we got. I want, yeah, I want. Wait, I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much. Uh, how much time do we have? Are we gonna take? Uh, we're about. We got about like thirty minutes. Oh, left. okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, because I don't. Because if I know how long I have, I can. I know how to speak. So now yeah. I was. I was actually. Uh, I was debating um, a future a dispensationalist about this very thing. Real Define rec- dispensationalist. So we can define some terms. Fair enough. Dispensationalist is sort of the left behind scenario. Okay. Yes, there are many different varieties, but it's the basic idea that um, that God's focus is on Israel, even though the church is here. God cares about Israel, and the prophecies are about Israel. So the church is just a sort of a parenthesis until God can get back to fulfilling his prophecies with Israel. And that's why they believe that in our near future, there's going to be a rapture, a seven-year tribulation, an antichrist, and then Christ is going to return. All those things, uh, except for the return of Christ, I would say were fulfilled in the first century. Yes, that's a shocker to a lot of people, um, but it has scholarly support, whether it's R.C. Sproul, who is a, one of the best theologians oh, yeah. in modern history, right? Going all the way back to, uh, you know— So mid- what, is, what is what you believe? What is the term for that? The term that I believe is called preterism, okay. and, and there are varieties of preterism as well, but preterism, basically the word is a Latin word that means the past. And so my, my belief system is that— uh, the prophecies of the last days are not to occur in our future. They occurred in the past, preterist. Why? Because the phrase last days is not last days of the earth like we assume in our modern Western interpretation. But if you look and into the text and study the concept of the last days in the Bible, you see last days means the last days 
of the old covenant. So to them, the covenant was everything. The covenant was the world. It was the cosmos. And so if God was ending the, the covenant, he's, it's like ending the cosmos and bringing a new cosmos. It's the last days, right? Right. So that's that's why people are so shocked when or they just last days of of the age because it talks about because this is the ending of an age, was it not? Exactly. And well, that's gonna. So, and, and so my my last question at, at the end will be like, so then what does it say about our end of days, if anything? But oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, yeah, because it, it's so it's the it, like it's. I mean, it's such an interesting take on it and it's so vastly different. And like, I imagine that's why it's so, I mean, I I was going to ask why, why is this so hard for people to get into if if it's what happened? And I can answer that easily because it changes a lot of things and like changes a whole lot of people's perceptions. So you said, well, how does, so how was the rapture fulfilled? Well, um, I don't think there is a rapture. Um, uh, and, and what the passages that most people refer to rapture are are usually it's uh, it's something the, they interpret into the passage. It's not there. Now, the the classic passage, I think, the is people uh, taken up into the sky. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. That, that's Second uh, Thessalonians four. I think it is. Oh, I'm wrong. I'm not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nope. I'm sorry. First Thessalonians four. And that's where, you know, it says, uh, I, I, do not be uninformed. Um, uh, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will descend with a cry and, and the trumpet will sound and the dead, dead in Christ will rise first. And that traditionally that has always been understood to be a reference to the resurrection. So okay. you could call it a rapture at the resurrection if you want, but uh, is there not a verse that says like, and I looked and saw like people meeting him in the sky? Am I completely making that up? Uh, uh, this is the or passage. Is that that's the passage. Okay. Uh, I didn't quote it. Let's see. Let's see. Um, then those who are left will be caught up together with him in yeah. the clouds to meet the Lord yeah, in the air. Yeah. 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 So uh, that is traditionally understood as that, that's the because that's, that's Christ like the coming real back deal and the, the dead world. being resurrected. Right. So there's no rapture before a tribulation. A tribulation. Or anything like that, that's right? just like the end. Exactly. So in my viewpoint, Makes I do sense. believe there still is a, uh, a physical bodily return of Christ, mm-hmm. a final resurrection and a final judgment. But those events are very, very vague and ambiguous, and we don't know anything about them because they're, no, they're not tied to this tribulation, this you know, rapture, what, the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff. What about the final battle where he destroyed the kings of – the kings of the earth gather their armies like the Valley of Megiddo stuff. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing because um, I want to say that, uh, uh, again, it's important when we're – if we're going to come at the book of Revelation, we have to – I think one of the biggest problems with Christians is they think – It's written oh, You're being us. symbolic. <laughs> it's just supposed to be literal. Well, look, ev- I think everyone knows that there's symbolism and there's some literal references, but, but – li- Look at this. The very first verse in Revelation says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He doesn't say they're going to take place thousands of years from now, right? It says this, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John. Now that word made it known in Greek is the word from which we get the word symbolism. So he's saying he symbolized it. Yes, it's semiosis, which is symbolism. So he's... if the very first verse of Revelation tells us this book is a <laughs> book symbolism. of symbolism, 
And you've got to stress symbolism. Therefore, when we go to things like, uh, you know, um, the arm, all the armies of the nations and Christ coming in the clouds, uh, I would argue that that is not about the return of Christ. Uh, Revelation 19 talks about Christ coming in the clouds. That is what we call Christ's cloud, cloud coming in judgment on Israel, on Jerusalem in particular. And what that means is um, this is another hard thing for many people to accept because it sounds so shockingly unique to them. But the truth is this very notion of coming on the clouds, it is it is something that is very important. It has biblical precedent. All throughout the Old Testament, there's dozens of places where this notion of God, Yahweh, coming on the clouds is used. And we have to realize that it always means something symbolic. And what it basically means is God comes in judgment upon a people, a city, or a nation. And so, for example, um, there's dozen, you know, there's like a dozen of these examples. Uh, okay. Isaiah 19.1, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. And the rest of Isaiah 19 describes God's judgment on Egypt. How did he come to Egypt? In the armies of Assyria. Are you telling me that the armies of Assyria were, were, were God's armies? Right. That's what right. the text says. In other words, God uses pagan nations to judge Israel or to judge another people because he's all powerful, right? And and there's you know, like I said, there's a dozen places. Um, uh, in in when when God de- destroys uh, Nineveh by Babylon, Nahum says God takes vengeance on his adversaries. He his way is a whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. So my point is is that this notion of coming on the clouds is not to be interpreted how we in the modern days think of, well, that must be Jesus surfing on a cumulus nimbus. I mean, it would look cool. It would look cool. I'll I'll grant you that. And like you said, they saw vision. You might see a vision of, of angels in the clouds, but in terms of what that means biblically and textually. It just means all encompassing essentially or complete or. It's a symbol of God coming in judgment upon a people. Now, did God literally come on the clouds? No, he didn't. So will Jesus, does he have to literally come on clouds? No, his cloud coming is a judgment. And go back to Matthew 24 and Matthew 23. Jesus says very clearly that his cloud coming is he's going to destroy the temple. And so it's a judgment. It's a judgment coming. This is going to be an offshoot, but I kind of just want to hear your take on it. There's definitely... Um, a recent move, I guess not recent, but a movement in like progressive Christianity where people are, people are having extreme issue with the quote Old Testament God and how could God order the slaughter of people? And is it not just a cultural people uh, reading God into their actions? Like when they say, like they just win a battle and then be like, oh, well obviously that was God on our side wanting us to slaughter these people. And they're in the, uh, a lot of people in certain movements in Christianity now are saying, like, yeah, God would never, never do that. I, like, it wouldn't be a God of merciless slaughter type of thing. Yeah, that's a complex issue to be. It to is. Be it fair. is. You know, you could you could get a scholar on and talk all all evening about it. But in short, excuse me. In short, I think it's an apologetic issue because um, I think basically what that means is um, people are simply coming to the text. They don't like it, so then they come up with a scenario 
to explain mm-hmm. how it came about. But think about it. You're just making something up. That's fiction. That's fantasy, right? How, how do you know that that's what happened? Here's the, yeah, pr- sure. here's the problem. If you don't believe – now, I admit, I admit, when I read the text, I am a believer. I believe that the Bible is God's word. So I do trust it uh, more than myself, and I do trust that I don't always understand what God's saying, but I do have the basic principle that, yeah, I trust it. So, yes, I believe that if God says that this was him, he came and judged these peoples, and therefore it's just. Or if God says, uh, tells Joshua, go and destroy all these Canaanite clans and kill every man, woman, and child, then I believe that that's legitimate because God's the creator of all things, and he can kill and, and create and do anything he wants. Um, however... If you don't want to accept that and you don't believe it, then you come up with a counter scenario or a counter narrative. But you see, that's just you're just pitting your own lack of faith against faith. And so the truth is, is it's it all comes down to faith. Do you believe the, what what it says is true or not? And if you say I don't I don't like it, I don't want to believe it. God's not like that. Well, all you're doing is imposing your prejudiced view of what God is upon the text. Now I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, I don't deny that no, no, yeah, some I'll, of these texts I'll, are problematic. Sure. And and I'll admit sometimes God. That, and and that's the that's the trouble with taking that defensible position. And then it's like, oh, so you just want him to be? It's like, no, no. no yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Up. Yeah, I just want to do a quick aside and, on that. And by the way, the truth is, um, there are some. Again, if you want to understand literature, you have to understand it within its original context. And there are – I will say this. I've read scholarship. I've read, read a whole book on this that actually says um, the phrase uh, destroying every man, woman, and child is a common phrase used by all the ancient Middle Eastern uh, nations and their military. And they all use it to describe their victories. But if you look in history okay. – you see that it's very rarely did they literal. do that. Now, sometimes okay. they may have. I mean, I don't deny that. But, but there are actual documented cases where they clearly didn't. And so it's not a lie. It's not an exaggeration. Oh, they're exaggerating. What it is is it was their symbolic way of explaining total victory. See? And so it's not necessary, actually, for them to have killed every woman and child to, have make, that, to make that statement. I got you. That's one. That's one way that some Christians address it. However, however, I, you know, my own study of it, I still have found places where it seems clear that God, God actually tells them, kill every man, woman, child, and the reason why is because they're connected to the Nephilim, and that's back yeah. at Numbers, and Numbers yeah. says yeah. That very clear. And that's, I think, I think that's that's also, I think that's where people, it's so. It's, People are funny, but that's where a lot of people are just like, nope, time out. No, I can't, that's yeah. your explanation? Yeah. Ain't, you're like, no. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it makes sense. But anyway, so. I deny that, that a lot in the Bible in today's modern mind, we're, we're blinded by our modern science that, that, that sure. binds us to all kinds of things. Some of science is good, yes, obviously, but it also, for example, it blinds us to the supernatural. So yeah, I acknowledge much. that there's a lot of things that us Christians believe in the Bible that seem outrageous in today's world. But you know what? I find it really amusing, the fairy tales that atheists believe in, like the multiverse, you know. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever, and they create this fantasy illusion of multiverse, of, of infinite number of universes 
clearly because they're trying to escape the notion of there being a God. And to me, that's just as funny. Okay, you know, you laugh at my belief in, in the Nephilim, but I laugh at your belief that there's an infinite number of universes because it's, it's, yeah. un, it's anti-science, actually. Both, both I, I will always admit that it, everything is almost equally as ridiculous from a certain point of view, but, like, at least I can admit it. But Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and so yes, it's, it's because it's not that we believe, it's not that we'll believe goofy things. It's that we believe these are supernatural. So we acknowledge, yes, it's outrageous to claim that a sea parted, but that's the evidence of the work of the miraculous power of God. It's not normal. It's not the way the universe normally works. And so at least we're saying that this is this is the supernatural interaction. It's not we're we're believing in fairies, you know. Right, and it's not like seas get parted every day. Yeah, it just happen once. Like yeah. Um. So yeah. So Beast in the Harlot, Mystery Babylon. What do you got on that? Oh boy. Okay. So, um, and by the way, to remind everybody, I actually all go into all of this detail in, in not just in a theological way, but in, in an actual historical way in my novel series. But I believe just on the surface, I believe that the harlot is a symbol of the, the apostate high priesthood of Jerusalem. That is the religious leaders of Jerusalem, God always dealt with his people through the religious leaders. And he's saying that the, the, um, and if you look at the, the, the description of the harlot, you know, in, in, um, Revelation 17, you see a lot of things like, uh, first of all, the word harlot, the word, the concept of a harlot is again, what does it mean in their context, not ours? It's not this arbitrary, oh yeah, it's just a generic symbol of, you know, so it's not it's not synonymous with like whore or prostitute. No, it actually it's a different thing. Exactly. Now the word is prostitute or harlot, but everywhere it's used in the Old Testament, God. I mean, other than a literal harlot person, but I mean, everywhere God uses it, He accuses Israel of being a harlot. Why? Because she was spiritually unfaithful to her husband Yahweh. Eighty-one, something like eighty-one out of ninety times, or something like that. And so the concept of harlot is only used in a covenantal context. Why? Because look, you can't, like, harlot is never used of Gentile nations is what I'm saying. Because Gentiles are not in covenant with God. But Israel was married to Yahweh, so Israel could be unfaithful, she could be harlot. Does that make sense? So when you see harlot in Revelation, he's talking about Israel the leaders of Israel in particular, and that phrase harlot is the key to it because no Gentile nations, the Romans, America, whatever, all these theories out there, Islam, they all believe, though it's the harlot, all of them are Gentile nations. They can't be because they're not in covenant with Yahweh. Only Israel was. So right then and there, that I think that is to me is the killer. But there's lot, there's lot, a lot more elements. Like, for instance, you read her description of what the woman's wearing. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. These description of these very same um, uh, 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 the wardrobe is the same description that is used of the high priest in Israel, in Josephus and in the Old Testament, when it talks about how on her forehead was written a mystery, Babylon the Great Mother. What, what does that mean? Oh, it's just a, yeah. oh, the forehead. Okay, it's just some symbol, forehead. I don't, 
you know, we look at that, it doesn't mean anything, but it would mean something to an ancient Jew because the Jews had the high priest in Jerusalem had a golden plate on his forehead that said, holy unto Yahweh. So isn't so it— why change that to mystery Babylon the Great? Because God is mocking first century leaders of Israel and Israel, and he's saying— you have become a harlot, you're unfaithful, you have become Babylon. In other words, you think you're my people, but you've actually become the enemies of God. Because who in the Bible, throughout the whole Bible, who's the ultimate enemy of God? Babylon. It's always Babylon, right? Yeah. Uh, and by the way, it's also Egypt, because Egypt was the, obviously the, 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 you know, the ones that kept them enslaved. And Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah are always used as a symbol of God's enemies. So in the Old Testament— You'll see God calling Israel Sodom. So we have the precedent where God, when he, God wants to judge Israel, he calls them by the name of an enemy of God. And then that's why, does that make sense? And then that's why he judges yeah, yeah. them. So in this sense, he's saying, you have become Babylon and that's why I'm going to judge you. That's why I'm going to destroy your temple. And there's a lot more to it, but I don't want to, you know, we're, we're limited on time. But yeah, but that's yeah. sort of to the, the essence of it, you know? So... Everything well. So, what about how does Daniel fit in Daniel's prophecies? Dude, you boy, the topics you raise. Let's talk about this for an hour. <laughs> I know. You know, actually, I do. I actually believe that the Daniel prophecies, Danielic prophecies, are probably the most intimately related to uh, the last days, the end times, and connected to Revelation because Daniel was, in fact, it was the Danielic prophecies in Daniel nine. 24 and on, that talks about the 70 weeks. And that was always known as a messianic prophecy. And because of that prophecy, when they added up the years, you know, 62 weeks and 70 weeks and the Messiah would come, Messiah the Prince, the, that's why the Jews in this first century were looking for Messiah, because they knew that Daniel prophecy. See, now they were oh, wow. Jesus. But my point is, is that Daniel prophecy had been the strongest basis for why they were all looking for Messiah. And so, uh, and then, you know, Daniel, though, Daniel talks about the four kingdoms. And there are four Gentile kingdoms, right? He talks about Babylon, or Babel, I'm sorry, yeah, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Remember the statue, right? And then remember the beasts mm -hmm. that are, the hybrid beasts? He's, Daniel's basically saying these kingdoms will rise up after us, one after the other. And they did in history, right? Yeah. But the important thing to know is, why is he saying this? What's the point? Does, does Daniel just want to say, oh, I'm a prophet. I'll tell you what's going to happen in history. No, the reason why he's saying it is, these are the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles means the time that Gentile kingdoms rule over Israel. But one day, and this is in Daniel 2, the whole point of it is, in that, in that Daniel 2 prophecy, he brings out the fact that a stone strikes the image right at at the feet where which was rome becomes a great mountain and fills the earth and that in the days of those kings god will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed and and that's messiah the messiah was the stone uncarved by hands right or and the, the kingdom he's talking about is the kingdom of god right the messianic right. kingdom the messianic kingdom will arrive during the fourth empire which turns out to be rome and lo and behold that's exactly oh, what wow. happened um, and so that, you know, I, 
and then you get to Daniel 12. That's a very complex thing. But I think Daniel 12 is also a reference to uh, the first century at fulfillment. Uh, with so, so I believe that the abomination of desolation, like Jesus said in Luke 21, the abomination of desolation is defined as the Roman armies surrounding the city, the holy city. The Roman armies are, are abomination. They're going to cause it desolation. And they're an abomination because they're the pagan nation, right? So they're an abomination to God. And so the, that famous verse that we read about in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation will, when it comes, you know, flee to the mountains, you find in Luke, Luke is defining, he's explaining. He doesn't say abomination of desolation. He says the same phrase that Jesus says, but he uses a different word. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, no. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And then everything else he says is the same as what Jesus said. And so my point is, is Luke is writing to a Greek audience, and they wouldn't understand this notion of abomination of desolation. That doesn't mean anything. That's a Hebrew. That's a Hebrew concept, right? So he sort of explains what it means. And that's how we understand that everything was riding up to God was going to judge Israel by using the Roman armies to destroy the holy city and the holy temple to obliterate the old covenant and bring in the new covenant kingdom of Messiah, which is, of course, Jesus Christ and the new covenant. That's glorious, isn't it? I mean, that's a, it is. That's a beautiful picture that I think Christians are missing. And it's a complete, it's, it's a complete narrative. It is. Is the thing. It, it completes is. the narrative. So, all right. So here's the wrap-up question, the big thing. So what is the lesson we today take from Revelation and... I guess, what does it say about the end times? And apparently it's just less important than we thought it was. Like, I guess, I guess that, I mean, it's a giant distraction. I mean, literally yeah. I, I lived the bulk of my early Christian life waiting for the rapture, waiting for Jesus to come thinking this world didn't matter. And I mean, I can see how that's a great tactic to just really make people not care about the now. Absolutely. I, I had the same issue as well. And here's what I think it is. And again, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm saying might sound shocking again. It'd be so hard for people to believe. But, um, you know, it's all this isn't just arbitrary. But anyway, so when you get to Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, right? Everyone assumes, oh, this is a literal new heaven and new earth. But if you read the text, it's not. It says the new heaven, and the new earth is the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's in verse 2. Then in verse 9, he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me to a mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So it's very clear that the, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. It's the new covenant community of God. And through that kingdom, and then that's why it talks about, you know, and you know, Revelation 20 and 21 then is a description of the glorious beauty of, of the kingdom of God, the new covenant. We are part of this beautiful new Jerusalem to therefore bring the gospel into the world and transform the, the world and transform people's lives. That to me is the exciting thing to look forward mm. to, is that we are a part of a kingdom that will grow like Daniel 2. It will grow to be a mountain to fill the earth. It begins like a stone hitting the statue, but it grows. So we are, what did Jesus say? He said, 
The kingdom of God is like, uh, you know, leaven. It starts small, but it fills the whole dough. It starts as the smallest seed, but it becomes the biggest tree in the garden. We are a part of the the greatest kingdom that will ultimately uh, outdo all kingdoms, but God does it historically. And that as Christianity grows in the earth, we are a part of that exciting, glorious kingdom. That, to me, is what we have to look forward to, not the Antichrist. <laughs> right. So— what uh, so what are the is that so part of the reasons for leaving Re- Revelation in is just like the lessons gleaned some some history and just as an end cap to the narrative of the Bible. Well, you know, I I kind of see it as um, yeah, I kind of see it, and it, it, think about it, it's the perfect completion picture. If if what I'm saying is true, then it is the perfect completion picture of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? The Old Covenant prophesied a coming Messiah that will someday unite the Gentiles and the Jews and bring peace in the world. Messiah did come. That New Covenant was came entered into the world, and it got rid of the Old Covenant, and, and it is here now. And it's that great kingdom that God prophesied. But it's a spiritual kingdom, and many Christians are still looking for this, you know, earthly m- military leader like the Jews yeah. did. And and um, I'm, I'm not, that's not to say that Christ won't return, but, but the point is, is that's not how his kingdom operates in the Bible. So yes, I think it's a completed picture of the spiritual kingdom of God and how, how the new covenant— is this glorious kingdom that we're a part of. You know, that to me, so that's you, what the images do. It, it makes me go, wow, what, I'm a part of this huge, glorious kingdom that I always just kind of think, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the new covenant. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, the church, you know? Yeah. So so in your in your imagination or thinking, and so the, the only things that are coming to mind to me now that like really would speak about our end times is it says like, you won't know the day or the time. It'll come like a thief in the night. One person will be working in the field and one will be taken or whatever. So like, as far as the end of all things, that'll probably just be an unceremonious, like, Oh yeah, it's now. Well, okay. Look, even, there... and, and then, and then I guess the second part is because since uh, doing this podcast especially and talking to so many different people my <laughs> view of the bible and faith and everything is just getting completely rewritten in good ways but <laughs> I hear like, so what what is the new heaven and new earth new earth new earth like what what do you even imagine yeah that afterlife being like? okay yeah well I, I appreciate your questions um now there are different there are different takes on this my personal take how i see it is uh first corinthians 15 is sort of like a passage that i do believe is talking about Christ's return and the physical resurrection of the dead. And in that, he says this, uh, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive. He's talking about the resurrection. Each in his order, Christ the firstfruits. Then, at his coming, those who believe, who belong to Christ. That's when we'll be resurrected. Then comes the end. Now, this, in this case, I think the end is talking about the end of history. When he, why? Because it says, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet, right? Um, so here's the thing. What does it say? Christ, when Christ ascended into heaven... He now reigns over all things. 
but the book of Hebrews says, yet nevertheless, we don't think we don't necessarily see all things under his feet yet, right? So what the, the idea there is that Christ is reigning as king. How does he conquer? He doesn't conquer through physical military force. He conquers through conversion. That's what Christianity is, right? So as Christ reigns in heaven over all the earth, as his kingdom grows, he is placing enemy placing enemies under your feet was obviously in the Old Testament was understood as a physical violent thing. That means you subjugate them. Sometimes you kill them, but it, to place them under your feet was to say, you are defeated, right? And that's a mm-hmm. physical thing. But now it's a spiritual reality, and the kingdom of God is not a physical—it's a, it's a spiritual kingdom that, uh, that, that conquers through conversion, not war, right? So as people become Christians, they are placed under Christ's feet, right? They become subjected to Christ, right? So what I'm, what I'm saying here is I think what it's saying is that— that grows and grows to the point where uh, most of the earth is probably, you know, under Christ's feet, but not not yet all of it. And then that's when Christ returns and he gives the kingdom to the Father. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, I believe that has to do with the ascension of Christ in the first century. He he arrives on the clouds. He ascends on the clouds to the Father. He doesn't come to, to the earth on clouds. He goes on the clouds up to the Father. And what does it say? It says he, Christ receives the kingdom and gives it to his saints. That's the new covenant kingdom. But then when Christ returns, he takes that kingdom that the Christians have, have been, you know, obviously building through the gospel— what and we're he, doing right now. Right. And then he gives the kingdom to the Father. So in the one case, he in, in the in the first century, Christ receives the kingdom for the Father. At the end of history, Christ just returns to deliver the kingdom to the Father, and then death is abolished. So so in other words, I see the kingdom of God as being victorious in history, and Christ returns. So yeah. And, and is there anything that tells us any signs that will tell us crisis? No, it's just basically at some point in history when the kingdom of God has been victorious over the earth to God's exception, satisfaction, right? Uh, it doesn't have to, it doesn't mean have to absolutely everyone, but, um, but basically, uh, you know, uh, then Christ returns to give the kingdom to the father. And that's kind of how I see it. Uh, again, that's a, I like it. You know, it's, it's cool, but it's glorious. Well, it's glorious. It is. Well, why don't you tell everyone where they can uh, find your books? All right. If you're freaked out by what I'm saying, you want to learn learn a little bit more before you want to jump in and buy, go to Godawa.com. That's G-O-D-A-W-A.com. All my stuff is there in terms of information on my books. You can click on Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and I will give you introductions to all the books I've written on the topic. You can find out if it's something you're interested. A lot of free articles, free art. I put, I cast all my novels. I have pictures of my cast and all that. So it's really cool. A lot of cool free stuff that you can get that's interesting if you want to learn more before you buy. But if you want to, you know, if you're very fascinated and willing to just put out a couple bucks to get a f- the first book. All my stuff is on Amazon exclusively. Everything I write is in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. So you can get that all on Amazon. Just look up my name there. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of good detailed description of books. And you can read the review reviews by, by my fans or by people who like the books and, or not. You know, uh, I get mostly four to five you know, star reviews. So, And by the way, I just want to say, you know, not to boast, but all my novels basically dominate the top 20. 
uh, and sometimes the top 10 of biblical fiction on Amazon. So oh, very cool. even if they're controversial, people have been finding them to be very fascinating. And, and I'm proud of that fact. And, and I guess, I guess why I say that is to encourage people, don't worry, even if it's not something you are familiar with or you're, you know, you'll, you'll be entertained. You'll enjoy it. Thanks for having me. Trap I set for you seems to have caught my leg instead. says this episode sponsored by scott's flights wait scott's what is it i'm not gonna help you here scott's I'm not doing it fine then scott's free flights with a bottle of scotch for free flights <laughs> flights, of fa- flights of fancy there you go flights of fancy that's a good that'd be a good um travel industry name so what do you think about um chris pratt's speech and everyone's like uh I mean, oh, it, he loves God and stuff. Yeah, it is I actually cool. didn't listen to it. But. Oh, really? It's good. It's very vague. I really, I mean, I, it, I guess it is kind of like slightly lame that, no, I don't know. I mean, it, it is, I like the dude and he is like a professing Christian and he is like, he does well with his fame. Well, he certainly can't be a Christian because he just got divorced. So there's that. Right. Right. That was, I wish they didn't. I liked them as a couple, but I get it. Um, you so you didn't? You do you know? I haven't seen it? it. No. Well, I just saw somebody like that's uber Christian be like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad Chris Pratt's a Christian and stuff." When I'm like, I don't think that it really matters at all, frankly. No, it was just pretty cool that he all he said was like, "God is real. God loves you." Okay. Yeah, it was very short, and but but it, and I guess that's kind of sad that that's that that ha- like. But it's true that why, why do we care that a celebrity is saying anything about God at all? Because because it is so antithesis of the culture of Hollywood. It's like that Silicon Valley um, Christian episode. That was so funny. It's, it's well, dude. So it's so fucking true though. It's it's like it's really like you know. Well, then wouldn't the, you wouldn't doesn't the like vague God reference? Isn't that right in line with like the hippie new age Hollywood that you're talking about? No, because I would say just God in general is equally as lambasted in in that uh, um, culture. Just I mean, I, do you think I'm? I mean, I don't think I'm wrong on that. 
It's just really, I don't I don't think it's lambasted. I think that in LA people are just way too too into themselves to think about anything else. I don't think that it's like oh we hate people that like God. It's just like I want a new BMW. That's like I think it's a little of both. I think it's a little of both. I feel well, like there is okay. like an, maybe, an actual like hate towards it. Uh maybe from I mean Maybe maybe from the outside looking in, I'm just saying like actual people in LA and Hollywood oh, like I don't forgot. give a shit. I forgot. John's like from LA and he like lives. I'm not from LA. Hollywood? I've never lived in LA. Uh, My cousin lived in Hollywood. Oh, there we go. Who's your co- who's your cousin, Robert De Niro? Yeah. Hayden Christensen. That's right. Both of them. Jude Law. Chris Pratt's my cousin. Is he? Yeah. I knew it, dude. He said he'd never come on here, though, because he hates you. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Well, well in that yeah. case, I hate him, too, and his, his stupid speech. Tell me you're not going to go see that new Jurassic World, though. Yeah, I might go see it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I might go after it. Yeah, right. yeah probably yeah. Saturday. I'm going to wait on Adam. Um, oh, I saw Incredibles, too. Um, we're going Saturday morning, like a family friend's boss rents out a whole theater apparently like once a year for kids what? and like they get free popcorn and candy and shit. And so we're all going on Who Saturday. Who are all these rich mofos you hanging out with? I'm not hanging out with him. I'm hanging out with one of his employees. Oh, uh, okay. like, Jeez, dude. Must, that's awesome. Yeah. Super cool, right? <sighs> wow. So we're seeing that on, on Saturday. Dang. Pretty excited. Although I'm on my keto diet, so I can't like splurge on the popcorn and candy and shit. Which is Popcorn's kind of... not keto. Nah, popcorn's like straight all carb, dog. That's can't like... you make like cauliflower popcorn and hate your life? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there's. <laughs> is there... Can't you make kale nugget popcorn? Yeah, just have like like just. It'll be the same. Oh, it's fucking gross. Why? Why are you doing this to yourself? Have you ever seen the Office uh, weight loss episode? Uh-uh. Anyway, Kelly at the she's like, well, Creed gave me a worm, and I ate it in my stomach, and it's eating all my food, so I'll lose weight. Because uh. um, I, I bought a size 4 bikini, and I'm going to look fantastic. Did she she's all more? She's all sick and stuff. And then it cuts to Creed, and Creed's like, it's not a tapeworm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's my. That's funny. That's good times. Um, but, um, I'm on it because I'm going to look fantastic. That's why. I actually feel a lot better, frankly. My mind, my brain fires faster. Oh, I think we should go back to the episodes when you were on keto before and, uh, and unequivocally disprove this theory that you're a better person on keto. You've been horrible on. You've been horrible off. <laughs> you're pretty much... You're a giant piece of shit, always. Yeah. How much Remember weight have you that? lost? 11, 12 pounds. How much do you weigh? 177. Hmm. So suck a dick. Hmm. I'm 193, baby. All right, Flash. It's moving on. <laughs> you like that callback? I like that callback. That was I guess. Um, okay. I wanted to do... Well, we can talk about the... So that ad we we circulated of uh, that new anti-drug ad showing um, Mm -hmm. the chick that drove into it. It's a true story. The chick that drove into a dumpster to get more pain pills. Yeah. Hey, um, 
congregation, go on our Facebook and like our page so you can watch this video so you know what we're talking about. Yes, and see the Jeremiah Peebles Superfan uh, episodes one and two. That is by far worth it. Yeah, we got plans for for the next one, too. It should be pretty funny. Just okay. Um, yeah, I'm super glad they they are finally showing, because that was my gig, dude. Like, that was, and it's especially, because there's, like, a whole brand of drug addict where, like, if you don't have any money, especially because I was on my parents' insurance until I was 26, so, like, worst case scenario, I knew I can just go to the ER and just get some free drugs, like, Mm-hmm. I cut myself at work and, uh, uh, like I went in the back of the office or whatever and pushed over a giant rack of metal, like where we kept all our silverware and just made a big racket. Mm-hmm. And then I just cut up my arm, uh, with a can and I was like, Oh, I ran around the corner and I was like, Oh, it fell on me. I need to go to the doctor and get some pain pills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Set my hand on fire. Yeah, I remember being like, what the fuck happened to your hand? Yeah, that looked Girl, awful. I burned it on my moped. and I, was, yeah, I bought it, was, actually. I was like, okay. Yeah, that that was the most awkward. Like, You should take a picture of that and post it on social yeah. media stuff so that people know. Yeah, yeah I, what I did, what the original story was that I, I woke up and I didn't have any drugs. And I was like, well, time to go. You know, my brain cr- kicked into drug-seeking mode. And so I... I um boiled or brewed a pot of coffee and as soon as it was done i took it off and i just dumped the whole thing on my hand (sighs) yeah and and it fucking turned red and hurt and i hopped on my moped and i drove to the er and by the time i got to the er my hand was normal again and i was like fuck and i was like thinking thinking and then i just i reached in my pocket and grabbed a bic lighter and just and just cooked the under or the uh uh, what is what is the other side of your hand called? Not the palm. Is there a the name? The back for of it? your hand. The back, back of my hand. Um, cooked it, and it looked like I didn't do anything because it just like bubbled, and then I just I wiped it away with my hand, and like everything came off, like down to like white sinewy. It was fucking yeah, and Gross. um, yeah, and I got pills for that for a long time even when i went to charleston that was the last so that was when i I, this was shortly before my my overdose in charleston but i was just going to urgent care clinics like one after another and just be like oh look at my hand and by the end of it i wasn't cleaning it and i was just getting so high and it makes you itch there was uh (laughs) dude there was toilet paper from I would just wash it and then just dab it with toilet paper, and there was toilet paper grown into my skin from where it would just stick in there. So Dude, you're so like, fucked up that you didn't yeah. pull it out. And so the the last it was starting to uh. it was starting to stink like gangrene stink. And the last doctor I took it to in Charleston was like, uh, "I'm gonna have to take your hand." And I was like, "Excuse me, say what?" Like, <laughs> what? And, and I was like. So I don't get any pills? He's like, no. And I am I really might have to cut your hand off. If we don't get this infection, like, it's coming off. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, gross, dude. I messed up. Yeah. That's so um, gross. 
Yeah, anyway, cool. picks here didn't happen. Whoop, whoop. Go check yeah, out our yeah. Facebook. Jed's going to post a pic of his – well, now healed hand. He, he does have a hand. And the story is is he didn't lose his hand. He still has it. Yeah, that's true. And now it's it's doing God's work. I wouldn't call that God's work. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey. Uh, I want to knock out a couple today I learned real quick. Okay. Today I learned. All right, so at the height at the height of the Grateful Dead's touring years, uh, Jerry Garcia was using blank worth of drugs per day, adjusted for inflation. How much? Give me a guess of how much adjusted, money. Adjusted for inflation? Yeah. 15 grand. Come on, that's ridiculous. That's no, not. 15 grand per day? Yeah. John. Do How some, much is do it? Do some math. Eighteen hundred, and that's still fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Fifteen thousand dollars a day. That means you're just literally throwing like, no, dude. Come on, you're just you're. You, that's impossible. Jeez, you've been out of the game. I too did long, a dude. lot of blow, bro. Fifty-five. I mean, wait. What did you say? Fifteen thousand dollars, dude. No, it just don't work that way. There's not a no. Mm-mm. That's like what, like six kilos? <laughs> yeah, that's not six keys. Anyway, keep going. Oh yeah, I live in L.A. I know what a key is. I've never lived in L.A. Exactly. Asshole. So you ain't no fucking expert, Chris Pratt is the man. Well, All right, so you crawl out of the bayou. You know. What's All going right. On. Your chance of winning. You ever play the Mega Millions? Yes. Oh, well, here, your chance of winning a Mega Millions, this is just an odd, like, uh, comparison unit of statistical probability. Your chance of winning a Mega Millions lottery is like knowing a hedgehog will sneeze once and only once in the next six years and putting your money down on one particular second and only winning if one sneeze happens exactly at that second. Do hedgehogs sneeze at all? Everything sneezes. They're uh, like, it's you. <laughs> it's the key. world's key I, to sneeze. I do like, like, dude. There's yeah. a there's an old lady chairing the meeting this tonight, and she totally censored herself. She called stuff the efforts, and she is all, and then you get the efforts, and you say, effort. I'm not doing that s. And I was Aww, like, oh. Toads adorbs. That is so adorbs. That is so adorbs. She's like 75. She's the cutest. Yeah, I have started my new thing when I, I started just like playing uh, mainly just video games online and at work, but I'm trying to... Um, Play video games at work? No, shut the shut the French waffles. Like I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to substitute cuss like and get that because it's like... Because cussing is so common now, it's no longer humorous. Like, it's way funnier to think of, like, a good string mm. of, like, you know. Snickerdoodles. No, not like that, but, like. Snicker mittens. Like, soft kitten paws. <laughs> yeah, something like you That's know, pretty it's, funny. It's, yeah, it, but, I, you know, funny. you got to think of, like, really random, really oddly specific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's you're what so I'm trying pleased. To do. You're so pleased with yourself. I am. So <laughs> kitten paws, I swear. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. All right, well, 
send us an email, churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com, patreon.com slash churchandotherdrugs. Um, yeah, we're going to get more stickers. You know, I need to do another run of shirts. There's a few Send sizes in. left. There's only like mediums and smalls. Yeah. Shirts. Go check out our Facebook. You see Jed's fucked up hand. Yeah, I'll do that right now. Okay. Except it won't. No. I'll do it next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.